we're going to see a lot more sprawl around code and I just think that how you operate and manage that code is going to be huge and it's going to become probably the biggest challenge I think for a lot of organisations as well as managing still what essentially would be technical debt. Hello and welcome to Explain It, brought to you by SoftCat, the show for IT professionals by IT professionals that aims to simplify the complex and often overcomplicated bits of enterprise IT without compromising on the detail. Welcome back to Season 3. I'm your new host, Zach Abbott, and over the next 30-ish minutes, I'll be challenging our panel of experts to take a different area of the IT ecosystem and, of course, explain it. This is episode one, and what better way to kick off the series, and in fact the year, than with a look forward, asking some of the biggest tech brains in SoftCat what they predict 2020 will bring for the industry. Here to discuss this with me today are five of SoftCat's chief technologists, Adam Luca for cybersecurity, Craig Lazinski for data and emerging tech, James Seaman, public sector, Adam Harding in modern workspace, and Dean Gardner in hybrid cloud, and of course, head of SoftCat's office of CTO, Dylan Foster Edwards. Hi guys, Uh, welcome to season three. Thank you for being part of the inaugural episode. You'll be pleased to know that the interesting fact has been abolished, um, so no pressure. Having said that, you can only watch one film for the rest of your life. What film is it, Adam? It's going to be Anchorman, guaranteed. Like You can watch that thing a million times. It's always average, so I feel like it's going to be good forever. Perfect. Great. So I I don't have... Uh, Sky at home, I have ITV2, so therefore Hot Fuzz, because it's on literally every evening and is a fantastic film. Great choice. Yeah. James? Donnie Brasco. Nice. Adam? i tell you what I did like. When, when I was a kid, I used to watch uh, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure all on repeat, like three times a day. Fair enough. Dean? Back to the Future Trilogy, because it's one film. Mm. No, you can't loophole that. No, 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 no. One film. Take away the credit. That's like saying Lord of the Rings is one film. Yeah, or Harry Potter or something. I'm going to move on, but just no. Poor, poor choice. Dylan? TV programme, whenever I'm bored, friends, always. Dodge the question completely. Thanks very much, Dylan. So I've tasked the guys to take a look at 2020 and come up with a couple of technology predictions for this year. One that they think is likely to happen, and one less likely to happen, but they'd like to see anyway. So without further ado, guys... What's going to happen in 2020, starting with Adam? So for me, the most likely thing to happen in 2020 is going to be vendor consolidation. Uh, We've already started seeing this at the business level. So Carbon Black was acquired by VMware. Symantec was acquired by Broadcom. So we're already starting to see a amalgamation and a consolidation of those vendors as they come together, being absorbed into larger companies who are looking to add cybersecurity to their existing business models. From a perspective of a customer, People have made large investments over the last probably 12 to 24 months in cybersecurity. And I think we've reached the point where there's now a lot of operational overhead to manage those tools and uh, products. We do a number of vendor consolidation assessment engagements where we go out and work with customers to help them understand their whole landscape against a framework. And what we've noticed there is that on average, customers have somewhere between 20 to 25 different security vendors. So it's a massive portfolio. And then if you take the average contract length, there's 28 or 29 months. You know, you do the maths on that and you start to say, well, I've, I've got to be renewing or replacing a product every one and a half months, which is kind of pretty crazy just from an operational perspective. So we're going to see that consolidation, people trying to drive more value out of the tools that they've got. 
I think this year we're going to see customers be a lot more ruthless, both with their reseller partners like Softcat uh, and technology partners, but also with the vendors and actually say, hey, you know, how are you helping me make life easier for myself? I don't just want a bunch more features. I don't want a bunch more whiz bangs. Actually, I want you to make my life better. You know, they talk about customer experience and customer outcome. Actually, what really matters is making your customer happy. That customer experience is going to become key. The simplification, really, of the the landscape is what we're seeing, and I think what we're we're finding is that even the public cloud providers, AWS, Azure, Microsoft, even Google now, they're acquiring and building technology to try and simplify what's happening in the data center as well. So they're coming back into the data center, um, and obviously with VMware, with their acquisitions and their development, they're they're trying to create a consistent platform because organizations that are trying to transform applications and data, it's not easy to do it with the technical debt that exists. And so there's this kind of landscape that exists within a customer state that's technical debt and trying to simplify that is kind of the challenge because a lot of the time organizations can't move forward. And so definitely there's this consolidation that's happening simplification in the data center, consistent platforms across multiple areas, including the public cloud, is kind of where we're seeing, I think, a lot of our customers wanting to get to and really starting to accelerate that, which is being helped by the vendors. And and that's where we, you know, we see containerization and what's happening around uh, trying to create that consistent application development structure as well um, because you don't get mobility in the application if you don't, unless you have that and and I think what we're trying to do is to get a platform set up for customers in a hybrid or multi-cloud way that allows that to happen it's not something you can flip a switch and just happens it has to um, be driven by some of the technology out there and historically that's not happened so the vendors now are driving some of that change interestingly it's I guess we've reached the point same with all of it where we're starting to think about the outcome. I think security is probably a bit late to the party, but quite often we've been kind of sold on the tech specs rather than asking like, what is this thing doing? Like, what is its functional requirement? The vendors are now speaking about their products, not as a set of SKUs, but actually what is the thing I'm trying to get from it? So, you know, am I trying to provide a secure way to share data? Am I trying to provide a a way to detect malicious events? Am I trying to find a way to respond to an incident that happens in my environment? You know, what are the security stories rather than actually what does the tech do by itself? I think it's bigger than that. I think through the acquisitions you were describing, the question isn't how do I share data securely? The platform providers and the acquisitions that are being made, it's how do I share data and now the conversation's moved to how do I do that securely? Because of the acquisitions, it's, sec- it's intrinsic security. It's not just simplifying it for the people managing it. Yeah, I guess the interesting part with that is that you think about the vendors, fundamentally security has no intrinsic value. The only point of security, the only reason we bother doing it is to enable you to consume more of the thing. Like you you, you consume more of a service if you believe it's secure. But you have to look at what are you securing? Because, you know, people, and we've seen this where they're acquiring software and technology for a point solution, essentially, or a point fix. And, and this is where you see that sprawl, which is you've, you've described. And, and ultimately, you can sell more security product. But what is it doing? What is it delivering? And then fitting the technology against that landscape. I think uh, just a final example, I think it's almost a bit bad. I feel bad being a sort of security technologist and saying this. The amount of people I see with vulnerability assessment tools who provide vulnerability assessment services and they might be paying 80 hundred thousand pounds for these tools you know on a subscription model yep no idea how they're going to ever remediate any of the problems so what's the point paying for a, a tool that you've not allocated any procedure cost operation to fixing what it shows you you might as well put the hundred grand in your pocket because it's just going to run every month and tell you you're still broken you know unless you're actually going to put the process in to fix this stuff you're just wasting a hundred grand just because you feel better because you've got a tool that tells you that 
doesn't mean you're any more secure. You're just getting the same information again and again. So I think a lot of this stuff is people are still not operationalizing it. You know, it's just a bunch more dashboards. It's the same for the whole environment, data. You know, we've got unstructured data. We've got structured data. We've got tools that can inform you as to what you should do. But are you going to do it? And this is the, I think, what's been the problem over the last 12 months and actually will continue to be a problem. You can invest in technology, but it's not going to solve or fix or develop or transform. You have to put intelligence and you have to put service or solutions in as part of a wider roadmap to deliver against that information to create an outcome ultimately. And, and I think what we're trying to see is that organizations don't want to worry about buying an infrastructure and making sure that infrastructure is running. They want a platform that's being run and supported for them so they can develop against it and they can make the data secure. They can make the application secure. They can develop new service against that applicational requirement. And that's why, you know, public cloud is suitable because ultimately you can just use it. I think that the consistent platform for me and the other thing that certainly we've seen is in the operational side of it, it's just SaaS of ops. What certainly in my world is, is becoming a big thing, you know, not actually installing a virtual machine to do operational services like management monitoring, backup security, actually looking at the SaaS. Isn't there a crazy stat that something like a third of all virtual machines deployed are there to look after other virtual machines or something stupid like that? But you say that, but we, we run cloud assessments and actually the, the initial uh, analysis of an on-premise vSphere or Hyper-V environment, which is running a bunch of virtual machines, you can quite qu quickly profile, you know, what actually is critical app against what actually is operational. And actually the split is pretty even across really? the virtual wow. machine 50, estate. 50. Yeah, absolutely. We, we see that. So, so, and, and, and so you can get to an answer where what are you going to do with the operational side of it if you're moving to cloud? We, we talk about application transformation. And that's hard, you know, when you've got legacy applications that are sitting on legacy platforms in databases that are difficult to unpick. That is a focus, no doubt. And that's where investment should be going. But don't ignore stuff that's running your systems because there are now services out there that they won't solve your problem, but they'll remove the dependency on running them locally. And in the security market, I think, as Adam was saying, that's happening. As you are now, you're not building a, a SCOM environment, an SCCM environment, having other third-party tools. You're using SaaS operational services. It's incumbent in the platform, and I think the security vendors are doing the same now. So it's not an afterthought. It's not something that you have to necessarily have a, a whole team of people. It's, it's incumbent in the product. You can't deliver file sharing without doing it securely. I think you're right with the simplification thing. And it, whether people realise it or not, that is what they're trying to do. I think sometimes what it actually pulls in, though, I don't know if laziness is the right word, but that, you know, in the same way you said, we identify problems and we do nothing to resolve them. And we see that on the reports that we produce for lots and lots of customers month after month after month. We highlight compliance risks and, and, and operational changes that you could make that would make big you know, cost savings, real basic stuff, to be honest, but we're not seeing anybody kick into gear and actually capitalize them. And I, and I worry whether at a, at a level above the operational tier in, a, in these organizations, people just think, oh, you just turn it on and it'll sort it out. There is no threat anymore. It's being sorted. I worry whether as part of this, there just isn't enough investment in the people to help them reskill up, you know, skill out um, so that they can actually fully benefit from it. Sometimes I think there's a missed opportunity to protect the resource when we look at how busy IT teams are. Nobody's helping them prioritize the short term, remove the pain, but actually that thing's going to come back again next week and again next week and again next week versus actually protecting the resource saying, well, we're prepared to live with a month of pain to actually transform and do something that they're saying going to moving forward actually give us continual benefit and i mean this is no disrespect intended because it, you know it's a hard job but it's very easy to get down into the micro and kind of sit in that pain cycle of you know do fix the thing come back go fix the thing come back go fix the thing and 
we kind of sit there and go, I'm very busy. But actually, you're, you're not. You are very busy, but you're not actually giving getting that maximum value out of your time because you're, you're just coming back around. You're not actually fixing the problem. You're just patching it over. You can be busy solving the symptom. Yeah, I think that's a great way of putting it. Something else that came up as a real crucial focus element for a lot of industries in the business tech report was end-user computing. Adam, what's your prediction for 2020? How is it going to change? I think the general theme will be about freedom versus control. I think as we launch into into 2020, there's a couple of seemingly opposing themes that have got a bit of a tailwind behind them, a bit of a mainstream momentum. In one corner, you've got employee experience, which is broadly translated into greater freedom for individuals. And on the other corner, we've got simplified control, which on the face of it is completely at odds with that freedom that we're looking to give to individuals. Employee experience is about how we as technologists can work with HR teams to improve employee engagement by delivering a thoroughly modern IT user experience. Now, in practical terms, this is about enabling greater employee choice, workforce mobility, and trying to implement immersive real-time collaboration tools to help with this new distributed network. Now, this freedom in itself to choose how you work, where and when you work, and which blend of apps and devices and wearables and whatever you use is game-changing for the user, but chaos to IT. And it feels really odds, as I said, with that simplified control that's got an equal measure of mainstream support at the moment. So to achieve simplified control of a multi-workspace estate that might well include Windows, Mac, Chrome OS, iOS, Android, virtual apps, virtual desktops, and, and a plethora of our other bits and pieces, then what we're going to need to do is move beyond standardizing operating systems and applications and start to treat this a bit more like we treat a multi-cloud estate, um, whereby we elevate up and standardize at data classification and control and conditional access and compliance and, and even boring stuff like consolidated billing, which really does matter to people. So I think that that whole piece is being driven out of employee engagement being top of mind. It's all based on the fact that we have one of the lowest rates of unemployment that we've seen for a very long time. There's a huge focus on retaining talent and recruiting new skills into the organization. And I think that that's only going to keep on going as we push into 2020. Adam, do you think there's ever a space whereby you can have too much choice? Do you think there's ever a space where you do need to be more prescriptive for people who take maybe less of an interest than we do in these sort of things? So I'm not a big subscriber of the only people in the workspace are millennials and Gen Zennials, so just do whatever the hell they want to recruit them. You know, whether they are 22 or they are 62, as long as they're contributing to us moving forwards as an organisation, you need to be there for them. So with choice, it doesn't mean I'm taking away the old stuff. I mean, I don't know whether you guys would agree, but every time in any of our areas, new technologies become available, I don't really remember us properly retiring the old stuff. We just keep it, you know, data centers have just got fuller. So I don't think choice means we have to exclude people that are comfortable with the ways of working or still want to use a piece of paper and a pencil. But yeah, it's about inclusion. And actually, that's one of the other things that will probably come out of this. I think accessibility for absolutely everybody is going to be quite a, a, a big topic this year, no matter what your abilities or disabilities. I think from, from an EUC perspective, we talk a lot about the consumer experience bleeding into the corporate world. It's this Sky Plus scenario. Everyone knows how to drive a Skybox. I think when we talk about choice and we talk about, we're talking security and cloud around the process, the people change. If you go and speak to someone fresh out of university today and ask them in a corporate world, how do you think you get an app on your laptop? They're going to talk about going to an app store. They're going to talk about the user experience, the use store. 
that they have on their phone. Do you think so? Have on a person. I, I, I do definitely. I do. And I, I think do. the 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 choice, the 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 consumer experience, the, the 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 stuff Adam was describing. I think from a stakeholder is going to be easier to consume. I think the step change will be be quicker. I think the the chaos in IT is a really important factor to focus on. Uh, yeah, and I understand where you're going from that you could confuse the situation, but. I can't guard people from the outside world and the consumer space is far more congested. All I'm saying is if you find a good way of using those technologies in your real life, then if you want to bring those to work with you and enhance what you're doing, you know, I've got one of these watch things. It's not work orientated, but I get all my notes and bits and pieces on it. It helps. I like it. I want to use it. Where's the harm? Yeah, I think that's fair. I just think sometimes you over can you can over egg the young person loves apps thing. I think just generally it's more about making sweeping generalizations about demographic groups. If you try and group a Gen Z or a millennial person into, you know, a very specific box, that's actually where organizations lose a lot of potential. You know, you look at Softcat's a very young organization and some of the even the generalizations that we make would suggest that perhaps people from uh, Adam Luke and my demographic don't know enough about servers or storage or networking because it's something that you have to have been born in 1950 to understand that you couldn't know what a POSIX command is because you don't have grey hair. And I think if you if you make generalisations then you can potentially lose a lot of impactful work in, in any aspect of corporate IT. And I think the, the thing that I want to get across is that employee choice has been a thing for 10, 15 years, 20 years. It's not like we didn't want people to have employee choice. But the point is, this year there are significant pressures on every organisation who's trying to thrive or just survive to retain the talent they've got in their organisation or attract new stuff so they can move forward. It's not all just around talent though, is it? And millennials and Gen Zennials and, and retaining staff. A lot of this, depending on the sector, is around adding efficiencies and we've, we've used the term simplification a number of times from a vendor and ops perspective. If you can use IT in a more effective way, you know, in a way that's, that's easier to manage and, and more con- subscribable by the consumers, by the stakeholders, there's a value to your business. It's not just around talent. It is important, but I think, again, very selfishly looking at public sector, clinicians, academics, they're tethered to IT. It becomes a barrier to the student or a barrier to the patient. Delivering a more agile, more consumer-focused service that the patient can access or the citizen can access. Or I mean, it, it's not just public sector. You think about multiple industries. Think about the AA, being able to deliver an engineer on the roadside the right tech to a tablet that might be a, an iPad one week or, a, or, a, an, or an Android device the week after. But James, on that point, just using that example, where I think that they've done it really well is what they've done is they've elevated it beyond flexibility of a device or delivery of a point it's about what function yeah what they've done is gone what does the person need to do and actually what app or service and data and interaction do i need to allow them to have with digital systems not can i get office on the ipad yep. like because that's, that's irrelevant that's it like that's the, it across yeah, the board it but people don't it. do that and i think that's where people if, if you know that was kind of what drove my challenge earlier is not so much i don't agree with what you're saying about abstraction but i think unless you take the step beyond abstraction and management where you can manage every different color of ipad you know to does it even matter because if they can't get salesforce or they can't get the crm or they can't get the data they need at the roadside or they can't get the x-ray image or whatever they need to be a better blur you know then we've kind of failed as it yep. and technologists because the rest of it is irrelevant like otherwise they just get mac on ipad and that's kind of what I was, i've been saying about focus on the abstraction not the device because it's the other stuff that counts James, you mentioned uh, public sector briefly there. Oh, um, coming from me, that isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Do you see similar trends in, in 2020 in the coming months or, or do you see it going a different way? 
I think um, the challenge in public sector is slightly different in each vertical for 2020, but the challenge is definitely around driving that output that everyone said it's the outcome and in public sector it's around giving the control back to the citizen the patient or the student so there's a huge drive and it's started already uh, but in 2020 it's going to be huge around giving control of your record your care uh, your service by integrating data and the challenges that that brings the public sector if you think of it about student journey so a student being able to know where they're going to be staying before they get to a campus, have interactive maps, being able to engage directly with the university, a patient being able to collaborate and, and talk directly with their clinicians and manage their own case and manage their own healthcare. The challenges that brings to an IT perspective is huge. And and it's, it's sort of where my colleagues come in. If you think about securing student data and, and citizen data and patient data, application development, the platforms you need, which are more than likely going to be public cloud platforms to deliver that app, to deliver that service. It's, it's a huge paradigm shift, but it's one that has to happen and it's different to every other sector. And the reason I say that is in the public sector, we are still technically in austerity measures. Actually, the public sector is dramatically underfunded. Elements of it have already been privatised. It's a dirty term, but if you look in education, you've got academies and academy trusts. These are private entities that are still taking funding from the public sector and a very small amounts of funding. So the challenge has to take place. They have to deliver on it because the money isn't there to continue the status quo. Um, so it's very different in that, and I mean no disrespect to this, but from, a, from an operational perspective within IT, the NHS has got some of the best clinicians in the world, but from an IT perspective, they're not a blue chip bank. So there's a capacity, capability, maturity problem in the sense that they have to make the, this democratisation of data. They have to give the service back to the patient, back to the citizen, back to the student. But the maturity to deliver that potentially isn't there in all cases. So it, it's, a, it's almost a perfect storm. Uh, in the sense that this this activity has to take place because the money isn't there for the status quo to continue. But trying to achieve that and achieve that in the timelines that are in place, if you look at some of the le- legislation, some of the literature that's out there, um, some some of the, the patient record stuff in healthcare, some of the, the student challenges that exist at HE and at K-12 as well, down at, down at the introductory education level, are huge and, and the timelines are very short. So it, it's, a, it's a huge challenge and 2020 is going to be a very big year, I think, for the public sector, irrelevant of government change, irrelevant of Brexit. What impact will Perda have in 2020? It's already biting. Does somebody tell us what Perda is? Because it feels like you two have got this secret safe word. It's, it's a hold period between old government and new government. So major investment, major policy change, major public sector structure changes, things like that can't take place for obvious reasons in case you have a, a, a change in government. And you said it's obviously going to be a very busy year. How are they going to do it then? So how, many, how long are they going to lose and how are they going to, how are they going to get around it, I guess? I've been very lucky of late to be meeting with a lot of senior people in the public sector and I've heard something that has been on one hand very positive but on the other hand to me very very scary in that lots of senior decision makers at sea level in public sector have all said very similar statements to me around the fact that they see the public sector being propped up by the vendor market and they're saying that as a positive assurance not softcat you've done a great job this year but in general the vendor market the manufacturers the oems the isvs resellers like ourselves are, are propping up that market and helping them and filling that gap that's so po- you mean we're driving the we're, we're helping to drive the agenda or we're-, we're we're helping not just to drive the agenda we're helping to meet compliance you talked about cyber essentials and, and iso accreditations and so on we do a lot in that space obviously a lot of our competitors do we, we are helping organizations achieve the standards that they need to achieve it's it's massively positive and it's it's a point of pride for me and the work that we do at softcat but it's also i'm quite fearful of it because there's a positive nature to that and, and obviously i would say this but I, I believe what we do is very positive but there's also that warranted environment problem that exists in the public sector local gov is a prime example of this healthcare 
education have made a step change of over the last couple of years, so it's not as bad. But in, in local authority, there's a small number of uh, ISVs that provide product for things like revs and bends and housing and, and so on. And they have a stranglehold on that market. So like a duopoly or a monopoly. Exactly. And and they control what tech can be used. You walk into a local authority and you'll find an election system that's only brought out every four years and lives under a desk on a dusty old box. They're, they'll be running on a, a piece of technology that is unsupported because that's just... That's, yeah, because they can't change that's it. That's the operating system it runs on. That's the database backend it needs to be supported on. So I think the, the fact that they're... To, to achieve these challenges, I think the vendor market, the OEMs, the ISVs, we all need to change and we all need to continue doing the good stuff that we're doing, but we need to be very, very mindful of the challenge and the budget constraints. And I don't want to bring it down to boring stuff, but the things that Dean alluded to, technology is never the answer. It has to be technology. It has to be process and governance change to make sure you get that value from that technology. We need to step up and support the public sector in that. I think on that, it seems like a good moment to bring in Craig in terms of emerging tech and maybe counter that and have a look at what you see coming in 2020. So it's obviously in, in emerging tech, it's particularly difficult to, to see what's going to happen over the coming 12 months. And, and as you can tell from my spectacles, I don't have 2020 vision. Nice. Thank you. However, the one I can be most certain about is probably that the artificial intelligence and the linked technologies to that are going to become a lot more prevalent over the next 12 months. And that's not to say that we're going to see general purpose AI become ubiquitous, but actually we're seeing a lot of consolidation in the market, but a lot of simplification. So organizations, whether that's the, the major public cloud providers that, that Dean's alluded to, or specialist organizations, companies like Paltarian or DataIQ, who are building operational data science and AI platforms that's allowing to reduce the inertia of being able to hire data scientists and maths PhDs to do work in the emerging AI space and actually democratize that platform by bringing up people who have a, a data background, a mathematics background, a, a DBA background, and really allow the democratization of that. What that also is doing is, is dropping the cost curve down as well. So with emerging tech, it's always difficult to make a business case for it. And that's what we see a lot of organizations that I work with really closely definitely see the value in, in AI, machine learning, robotic process automation, but it's very hard to define a, a strict business case. They don't know the, the risk to reward ratio that's, that's available there. So, you know, with, with things like security or cloud, we have defined techniques, we have tools to, to understand the cost, whether that's a hundred million pound ICO fine for a GDPR breach or some of the, the numbers that we're seeing coming out of our cloud intelligence platform on, on what the cost and return is. With emerging tech, it becomes more difficult. So I think as we're, we're starting to see these more cost-effective models and, and reducing the amount of time that goes into emerging tech, there's going to be a really big uptake in, in that area of AI and AI-linked technologies because simply it's easier to deploy, it's easier to understand, and that cost base is dropping with demand, if anything, increasing. I just want to kind of link the, the, the together because James is alluding to the fact that there's ISVs out there within public sector that kind of aren't innovating quick enough to meet the demand. And actually, I'd say that's across all industries that we work with is that there are traditional software vendors that have delivered software into specific areas like legal and you know other businesses. And they do have an, a, almost a monopoly because they're ingrained in that particular business and have been so for quite a few years. And I think what we're seeing now is the, the, the benefit of you know, cloud platforms is that you've got a lot of organizations, small startups, idea factory kind of models, actually building and developing applications to actually solve some of those challenges. And I think you're going to see that emerging over the next couple of years, actually, where 
these applications are going to disrupt these and there's going to be a lot more applications out there than there has ever been before being developed fixing some of those problems they may not be big massive applications but a lot of the functions we see within the applications that these isvs provide you can take out components and create almost micro apps if you will that do the same thing but you're going to see i think a lot of development in that space a lot of small organizations start encroaching and disrupting the big isvs that have, have had this monopoly over the next couple of years and i think cloud platforms and consistent platforms across uh, multiple clouds will help that help that happen and that's when you start getting to subscription billing you get to it becomes quite complex but that's where you you, you move towards uh, standard platform operating models because ultimately the application it is important. It's the most important thing. And the data under it is important. And that leads on to where you have emerging technologies where you then need engines off the back of that to make intelligent decisions on your behalf. And that's where, for me, a lot of these functions that exist in cloud platforms actually allow that to happen. And, and a lot of those traditional ISVs that, for me, are holding up business globally, they leave that have to change or they will be removed from the equation. And I think that's going to happen over the next few years. And, 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 and that has to happen for, for true and real change to happen within business. So we've talked at quite some length about what we think it is is likely to and, and what could happen and what has to happen and what change has to be done. Let's have a, a more lighthearted look and have a look at some off-the-wall things that you would like to see. Does anyone want to start on that one? Go on. I'll start as I started the last one. So cybersecurity is going to be fixed. Done. Wow. Completed it. Just completed Bold it. Bold statement. Just, it's all done. Collected the whole set. So just collected the whole set of cybersecurities, all go home, whole billion multi-billion dollar industry collapses you know world goes under what do i do um so actually what do i mean so <laughs> so there is there is in research papers currently at the moment and small pilots that using mathematics we can do something called a mathematical proof of software so what this essentially is is the ability to validate mathematically that there are absolutely zero errors in software now, why does that matter? When we think about cybersecurity, cybersecurity only exists, if you can believe it, because someone messed up. So the only reason we exist as an industry is because the programmer, when they built the piece of software you're using, messed up. Yeah, and they left a bug, they left a vulnerability in the code that could be exploited. Now, it's probably not true to say that's 100% of cybersecurity because you still have human error and you still have people messing up. But when we look at traditional, when people think, oh, my bank account got hacked or, you know, we hacked that piece of software, that's what they're thinking about. It's a software error. Would you do the class that as user error? A port open, left open? Yeah, but, but it doesn't matter. The, if the port is open and there's no vulnerability because the software is perfect, you can have all the ports left open. As long as you're... Yeah, okay. Because actually the only fear we have about the port being open is either A, you can compromise it via an exploit, which is, again, software vulnerability. B, the authentication mechanism is weak, i.e. you've used a password that you've used before somewhere else. Or C, somebody makes a mistake, i.e. I shouldn't have sent you that email, the human error aspect of it. You know, we can get rid of a whole giant class of cybersecurity problems of which antiviruses wouldn't need to exist. So the idea essentially is that you can use maths and you can use um, use essentially mathematical techniques to validate before that software goes out that that code is perfect. It's happened a few times in history. So when they had the Apollo missions, when NASA was writing the software to essentially get the, the guidance to get them over to the moon, they had to make sure that it was correct. And given a small amount of code, so a small enough amount of code, you can mathematically prove that that software is 100% functional. 
Now, the only thing that holds us back from that is the curve of difficulty of how long it takes is exponential to the amount of data you put into it. So, you know, if you have a piece of software with four lines of code, it's pretty easy to validate that and check that it's 100% correct. Now, if that expands exponentially, then all of a sudden the problem gets massive and so massive that we can't fix it. But given the fullness of time and, and this area of research, we could reach a point where actually you don't need to update your iPhone for a security patch because there ain't no security problems in it. Cool. James? Anybody who has anything to do with the public sector is going to shudder when I say this, but I think there's an opportunity with the new government to see a genuine focus change in the public sector. So in the past, people will be aware of the MP fit in, a, in healthcare. There's a real opportunity for a public sector-wide type programme of, of funding integration and collaboration with the vendors, with the ISVs, uh, the open standards challenge that's out there to put some money in and actually do something really impactful in the public sector. So it's around funding, it's around a focus change on where the value actually is. Okay, Craig. What is extremely unlikely to happen, but could, it is within the realms of possibility, is that we will see a commercialised quantum computer within 2020. There's been some controversy over the last sort of six months as Google claimed to have achieved quantum supremacy, and then IBM went, mm, have you though? There is definitely a lot of research going into the area of quantum computing and making that commercialised, but the reason that that's unlikely to happen, and that actually applies in a lot of emerging tech, with emerging tech, there's a lot of supporting and utility factors required. So in, in quantum computing, we need a lot of areas of software. We need the supporting infrastructure. You can't just throw one into your, your average data center. The, the supporting and utility factors that wrap around it, we look at, at things like autonomous driving. To take autonomous driving away from, from motorways and built-up areas requires a very different infrastructure. It's going to require ubiquitous 5G. It's going to require huge proportions of edge computing because processing video, LiDAR, and sensor data in the cloud just isn't going to happen. I mean, it could, but you're going to see an awful lot of pedestrians and occupants of cars dying if you want to do that, just because of the sheer latency. milliseconds in front of a car. Yeah, you have to check the car's ping before you decide to cross (laughs) the road, um, which is, is not likely to happen. But that's one of the issues that we see with a lot of emerging tech is being able to achieve it in a short space of time requires a huge amount of supporting factors that, oftentimes you need this, what our, our illustrious former leader Sam Routledge referred to as the nexus of forces to combine to to allow us to productize these emerging techs into something that moves out of the lab and from a test bed into something that actually becomes useful to people and organizations outside of the research and academic space. Thanks, Craig. Uh, Adam? Yeah, no, so I was going to throw in there the rise of the citizen developer. I mean, I think I would like to see normal people creating task-specific applications and automations uh, using low-code and no-code solutions, maybe using RPA, whether or not APIs available, and so on and so forth. The stuff is all out there. So I would like to see that start to make some progress in the corporate world. And the reason I think it's important is, realistically, technology is about doing stuff faster, and every minute does count. I think our key challenges technologists is we have lots of tools but the hardest thing is because your job is to have the tools you you don't actually know what the problems are all the time and i think people somehow expect us by magic to just by osmosis to know what a doctor needs to have better you know what an administrator what a receptionist what whoever whatever job you do but the person who knows it best is you like i know what i need to do better to do my life better we've proven the model so a very self-serving statement but myself and craig worked with an nhs trust on RPA, we engaged with the clinicians, we engaged with the patients, we found use cases, so they came to us, they told us what the problem space was. Um, we All we did really was 
describe the art of the possible and provide the box of tools, the Lego bricks that they needed. They've employed that service now, implemented a number of RPA agents um, for two use cases and are seeing over a year now thousands more patients because exactly as Adam's just described, there's a task they don't have to perform now. They have more patient engagement time. And I think just wrapping it up, um, the reason I don't think it's likely is actually because of Luca's lot. I think that many organisations just haven't yet worked through the process of, de- of defining the security principles or how to allow people to have access to these, you know, the systems of record that are required and the systems of interaction that are required. And hands up, even at Softcat, if I try and go to a power platform, it doesn't exist because we've locked it down because we haven't quite figured out who should and who shouldn't have access to it yet. And I think that kind of just figuring out how to give that freedom again will unlock a lot of potential. Cool. Uh, Dean, off the wall? Yeah, um, I think it was off the wall, but certainly dev teams that are developing everywhere, I just think that they're going to have to actually start working with operations teams and cost and security sprawl will, will be fixed and I don't think obviously that's going to happen. But do you think we're living in a utopia? Yeah, yeah, that would be a utopia. But yeah, that's, that's that's for me. I think developer teams are not going to grow. That's where budgets are going. Um, we're going to see a lot more sprawl around code, and I just think that how you operate and manage that code is going to be huge, and it's going to become probably the biggest challenge I think for a lot of organisations. Um, and as well as managing still what essentially would be technical debt. So it's kind of just trying to manage all of that. And goes back to, for me, that the point was made at the start, the simplification, just creating consistent platforms and consistent operating models to facilitate code development, development across multiple platforms. And I think that's going to be, yeah, a massive challenge and it can it will continue to be so. I also think that, you know, true multi-cloud management is going to become uh, a standard way of operating and the public cloud providers will completely and continuously encroach back into the data center and the edge, which is what we're going to see, I think, quite aggressively over the next 12 months. Cool. Thanks, Dean. Well, that about wraps up the episode. To quickly summarize, I'm going to hand over to Dylan. You take us through each of the five fields and the key takeaways for 2020. So we had uh, Luca and Dean both uh, combine efforts to ultimately suggest that simplification of security and cloud is what's going to happen in 2020. Lods talked about uh, AI and AI-related technologies are on the increase. James talked about handing control back to the patient or citizen to access their services. And Harding talked about balancing user freedom and simplifying control to support employee engagement. Cool. Thanks, Dylan. Guys, it's been really interesting talking with you. Uh, thank you very much for your time. And that's it for episode one. Uh, if you want to know anything more about what was covered in today's episode, please email in podcast at softcat.com. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you very much for listening to Explain It from Softcat. Softcat.